Mark Oppenheimer. Hi, it's Tori Spelling here, the OG Donna Martin from Beverly Hills 90210. Your podcast family tells me some fun info that you are retiring from the number one Jewish podcast, Unorthodox, after, oh my gosh, mind blown, 360 episodes in seven years. Oh my gosh, amazing. But my catchphrase was, Donna Martin graduates. Donna Martin graduates. So now I can officially say it. Mark Oppenheimer retires. Mark Oppenheimer (laughs) retires. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It just got even better. Oh my. Was that really her? Yes, it was. Oh, oh, I have so many feelings. <laughs> this is, wow. Um, today. <laughs> so today's my last episode of the show. It's, I think it's episode 360. It is, right? It, right? Uh, which for those of you who are Jewishly inclined know is a, um, a multiple of 18 and therefore a good number for a uh bar mitzvah gift or a bat mitzvah gift or uh, a run on a podcast. And I'm here hosting for the final time, Liel, Stephanie. I'm here with my co-hosts, Liel and Stephanie. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I figured the Marcusode would involve interviewing my sadistic fourth grade teacher, maybe some siblings, maybe Archie the dog. I, I did not know Tori Spelling was coming. And we I, went big. Should and we just s- stop there? We're not going to top that. There's <laughs> oh, no way. No, I think, I think, we're I think not we, going to top that. I think we might. There's a whole episode coming up. For those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, you haven't listened to enough Unorthodox, Tori Spelling played Donna Martin of the original run of Beverly Hills 90210. She also, I mean, she's she's epical. And um, for those of you who don't know who she is, go, you have a lot of TV watching to catch up on, but she's a very, very special person, very special TV character in my high school years. Tori Spelling, who who played Donna Martin, was, was one of the most important actresses of, I would say, of the 90s. I would say ever. Ever. Of all time. Ever. Yeah. Where do we go from there, friends? I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to to December 2nd, 2008, when I sent an email. I was a <laughs> senior in, in college, and I wanted to write about religion. And I, I sent a cold email to someone, and I'd like to read it now on the air. Maestro Music, please. Hi, Mr. Oppenheimer. <laughs> Laura Lieber gave me your contact information and suggested I get in touch with you. It all started uh, with Laura Lieber. Yep, it always does. <laughs> By the way, we should have had Tori Spelling read this, this note. Uh, Hi, Mr. Oppenheimer. I mean, she made up the word retirates. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer retirates, so we can never, we can never top that. She's you know, a genius storyteller. I've been reading your website and have really enjoyed your articles on religion. I went to HTTP yes, I, I pulled up your website before www. emailing you. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you and ask you some questions to learn more about your work. Do you have any time in the next few weeks to talk through email or on the phone? Please let me know what works for you. Thanks so much, Stephanie. You wrote back like hours later. I'd be happy to talk anytime, exclamation mark. My office phone is redacted. Right, right. And then you never called. I never called. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, this exchange is everything. Completely stood me up. Well, I was like, wait, I'm supposed to call him? And so we're having this call right now. Stephanie, please. I just You have Mark talk. To me, this is this is who you are. You know, you get a cold email out of the blue from someone at a different school who wants, who's clearly perused your website for ten minutes and wanted to talk to you. And you said, "Great, call me." And and you did a few things in that, which is so Mark, right? You said, "I'm super happy to talk." 
make the call. And like, you were actually giving me a journalism test without even realizing it, right? Or maybe you did it was realize. Homework. Yeah. Where you're like, great, if you can pick up the phone and call me, I will talk to you for hours. And I think that that to me is like everything about you. And then, you know, I just remember going to lunch with you. I, this is, a, is this your funeral or your bar mitzvah here? I don't, I don't know, know, what, we're, I don't what, know. What, what I'm doing here. But I, I, I haven't had either one when yet. You first, so. When you first <laughs> started right. a tablet, you, you took me to lunch. And I remember you said, you were like, this is a good place for you. I think you're going to stay here. You're going to have kids. Like you like told me my whole lifespan, <laughs> like having just met me. And it weirdly ended up being true. Um, at the time I was like, this is crazy. I don't know. But um, I just feel so grateful to you because I, I ever since that first email, that the line has been open. Um, I've called you many times since then. Same you, phone you're number. actually on my favorites list, which I think is just because it's like my mom, my dad, my husband, Mark and Liel. Um, so make of that what you will. But I just feel so grateful to you oh. for being such a mentor to me, to all of us, to all the people you've brought on staff here who have also started I will their say, careers here. I will say that I was thinking about, you know, I've now been a tablet for 10 years and and the podcast is going for almost eight. And I was thinking the thing that excites me the most when I talk about what we've done here is the people whom I got to hire. And, you know, Quinn came in through the Tablet Fellows Program. Robert is somebody I had been, who, whose teacher I had been and then recruited to here. Josh came in through my sister-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> like the tentacles reach far and wide. My teaching, my my fellowship mentoring, my sister-in-law, you know. Oh, well, Ellie Blyer was a tablet fellow and I ran that program. Uh, Nomi Kaltman was a tablet fellow. They're just all these people who, um, I think I'm a good talent spotter. You really but are. I think I'm, I'm like a good friend spotter and a good talent spotter. And yeah. I just think like, that's been really, really fun. Also, we'll call these people the Marquettes. The Marquettes. You're also well, a good, they're, like, they're the maker. You're a matchmaker also. In life, not in life. In life, I've made a couple marriages. That's the insane, though. The like, third one, that's very unusual. and the third one is is controversial because Sid claims that she set them up, and I think she might have said, "Oh, you know, we should set up." Is Matt and Chloe? And I think I said at the same moment, Matt and Chloe. I think I, but I think she started the sentence first. But you finished it. But I finished it. But one of them really was her college friend, and so I think she was more. It was more her job to find love. You get, yeah, you, you, still, you still definitely get an assist. But I think, do I get an assist? You know, there's that Jewish legend that if you make three matches, you get a spot in the world to come. And I think I'm at like two. You're at least on the way seven. There's no, there's no question about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of the Delta upgrade, you know, maybe you're or on getting standby. bumped. Up Walking too. over yeah. here, I saw a line snaking around 29th Street or something. I mean, literally like up one block, then across the crosswalk, down the other block. And, and it was every age. Every color, every ethnicity, every affect, every hairstyle, every and I'm thinking, what is this? Who died? And it was a sample sale. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I was about to say it's either it's either a new bakery right. or a sample sale. It's the or, next cronut. Or 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 a sample sale. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this is what the people just outside the pearly gates are like. There are, you know, it's the line sneaking around the block. I'm in that line. I'm in the sample sale line, hoping to get in while there's still room. Well, you will, you will always be in, in our book. Look, I'm going to keep this very brief and, and very unemotional because we take the uh, host emeritus status very seriously and, and we will be calling on you more than you wish to be called on. Well, you've let me keep the microphone. Um, but <laughs> so I, that's, that's, that's how I know that I'm, I'm in because <laughs> the microphone is still in my basement. I want to do the thing that I know every debater craves uh, more than anything. And you, of course, are the, the master debater and yeah. the author of the definitive account of debate culture, which is concede a point. Um, you and this story has been told uh, on air and in live shows, but cannot be told often enough. You called us one Friday afternoon, 
some years ago. Uh, and I remember so clearly where I was standing and what I was feeling uh, in my bedroom and very annoyed because it was like 3.30 p.m. on a Friday and I really wanted to get on with my Shabbos preparations. And you had an idea that struck me as so you were, profoundly. You were having your, your, your pre-Shabbos mustache trim. I, I was, I was <laughs> getting my, my back shaved by the other Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> your valet uh, was behind you, dyeing each of your white hairs you know, one at a time, I sort was, of doing, foiling your hair. into the spirit of Shabbos. <laughs> and here you are calling with an idea that struck me as so self-involved and stupid because you said, let's have a podcast. And I said, that's great. That already was strike one because I thought, who in the right mind spends time listening to podcasts? You know, I don't. So as, therefore, you know, most of the world probably doesn't either. Uh, and then he said, yeah, you know, like our conversations are interesting. We'll just do the thing that we do when we get together and talk. And I thought, what a what a preposterous idea. I mean, who in their right mind would really want to tune in to hear us talk? Uh, and I called Stephanie. It was my next call because, you know, I'm thinking of maybe asking Stephanie too. And and uh, Stephanie, to her credit, had exactly the same reaction <laughs> as like, I did. She's like, this is just, you know, so, so, Oppenheimer's so had a lot of bad ideas. This is the worst. <laughs> this is probably He's peak, really outdone himself peak, with this peak idea. Peak bottom uh, yeah, Oppenheimer of, out. Of, of the absolute worst of the worst. But okay, Let's go with it because he's our friend and we respect him and we, we don't we don't want to break his little heart. So, you know, we'll just do it for a while until it dies of natural causes three episodes in. And I will say right here and for the record and for all posterity, I was completely, utterly and absolutely wrong and not just wrong, but blind to the to the deep and, and heartened potential that you sort of intuitively understood of how many people, not just that we needed this show uh, to to strike this friendship and to explore all these ideas and directions, but that so many people who feel really, for whatever reason, you know, ill at ease in what has become of traditional Jewish communal life, need a place where they could just be together, where they could just disagree, where they could just have real conversations, where they could just be silly, where they could just engage in, in the truest sense of Yiddishkeit. Uh, and that, my friend, is all you. And for that, us oh. and the Jewish world will always be in your debt. Wait, I just realized something. You scouted, you picked both of us for this show. I, yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to say it. But you did I, it. Was, it wasn't our idea. Like, no. yeah, talk about the spotting people. Like, you yeah. said, yeah. We were the first good, two hires. I have a good talent spotter. <laughs> a good talent spotter. And good I, talent spotter. I guess I just want to say this, that the show is in good hands and we love you so much. And we're so excited for everything that you are moving on to. You will always be part of our our family. Um, and before I let you say anything, we have one final gift. At our live show this weekend, we presented you with the official Unorthodox 360 corduroy jacket. Which I was going to wear today. And then I thought, I think it's going to be too warm for that. And then it wasn't too warm for that. I got out of Grand Central. It was 53 degrees. I thought, how did I not wear my corduroy jacket today? The corduroy Sarav will always have yeah. his official. Embroidered. I mean, UO no corduroy th- today. With 360 embroidered on it. We have one final gift for you. Because I think it will... Um, a pickleball racket? No, I'm I would think, never. What are all the things I've cast shade on no, over the years think, that you could ironically give me? I this think, is more of an assignment. Right? Let's, this, let's have a parting gift yes. and more of a to-do. A, a, a lifetime pass to all the museums. In in your spare time, Mark, oh dear. please tell our listener what's what's in this bag. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brand spanking new paperback copy of the definitive edition, 70th anniversary edition, of the Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. So, which you have never <laughs> to this day read. <laughs> so, somebody just texted me this morning. My friend Brian Slattery texted me and said, as I was about to get on the train, 
And it, the text said, a friend of mine says he's trying to find the amazing piece you wrote about Art Spiegelman's mouse. Um, where was that? And I wrote back to him. I said, I've never read mouse. <laughs> so, so, you know what I He's like, I, on the theme of worst Jewish journalist ever, haven't read mouse, haven't read Diary of a Young Girl, but I now will read Diary of a Young Girl, which by the way, Anna is reading right now. My, my fourth grader is reading it right now. And I was thinking to myself, this will be something she's read that I've never read. And now, it starts now. And my reading now. We my, can amend that. The pile by my bed now goes to this. And I've been assigned another book because Quinn Waller has has persuaded me that I have to read Bill Buford's Dirt. And since she and I have pretty much the exact same taste in literature, I am a seat. I've ordered my copy already. So I have two two books assigned and I will read them both. So look, I won't tell you how this one ends, but uh, <laughs> you know, we would love to sit here and chat all day. But we have a packed episode with all sorts of of incredible surprises and tributes coming up. Uh, so let us just roll the tape. Hello, my unorthodox friends. It's Gabriel Sabat. I just had to pay tribute to the great Mark Oppenheimer, Lord of Oppenshire Manor, who confoundingly somehow manages to be deeply obsessed with traditional menswear and also be barefoot like 95% of the time. What a mix. What a man. In all seriousness, I cannot thank Mark enough for opening the wonderful space of Unorthodox, the sort of shul equivalent of the back of the bus for those of us who thrive on Jewish connection and want to keep our tongues firmly in our cheeks. Thank you so much, Mark, for everything you've done for me and for the whole Unorthodox community. Hi, Unorthodox. I first listened to Unorthodox when I was the only Jewish student in Judaism 101 in college. I needed to cite something that I already knew to be true and came across of Unorthodox repeating exactly what I said. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. First episode I listened to, Mark mentioned that he went to Loomis Jaycee, which is also where I attended high school. And I immediately started listening to every episode. And um, it's been four or five years since, and I've enjoyed every single one. And thank you, Mark, creating such a great Jay community. Thanks. Hey, it's Alana Newhouse, editor of Tablet, um, and much, much longer before that, friend to Mark Oppenheimer and friend, hopefully, to Mark Oppenheimer until the day I die. My favorite episode is actually the first episode of Unorthodox, which I recently listened to, and it serves as an amazing reminder of how little we knew about what this podcast was at the time and what it was going to become and how brilliant an idea it was. It also served to bring me back to the moment when the podcast launched and how Mark came to Tablet in the first place. Mark and I had been friends for years. When I was pregnant in 2014, the plan for my maternity leave fell through and I needed somebody to come in and really quickly and take over for me. When I thought about it, I thought I need someone who actually knows how to run an editorial staff and somebody who has really great perspective journalistically and somebody who I think could get along with the staff at the time. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, oh gosh, it's Mark. It's my friend Mark, but I wonder, I, I, I doubt he could do it. 
I called Mark the next day and I said, Mark, I am going to ask you for a favor and I need to tell you that it's a big favor and I also really need you to do it. (laughs) And he listened and he called me back about four or five hours later and he said, I'm in. So Mark swooped in and took over for me for my maternity leave. But then I came back from my maternity leave and Mark fell in love and He said to me, well, I know you're back from maternity leave, but is there a way that I could stay? And I said, well, sure. What, do you have something in mind? And he said, yeah, Stephanie Liel and I have been talking and we want to start a podcast. And I thought, do any of you know anything about podcasts? Do you know anything about each other? (laughs) And the answer at the time was no on both counts, but it turned out that was actually a good thing. And now before we leave our prayers of the week, for the coming week, my prayer is this. Wet Hot American Summer's eight-part sequel debuts on Netflix. I have never found the original movie funny. That's really not allowed in hipster comedy circles. Everyone loves this movie. So my prayer is that the Netflix series, which I will watch, helps me understand the original joke of Wet Hot American Summer. Liel? Um, I'll say this in a form of a prayer. Uh, Dear dear God the Almighty, we thank you for the bounties of the Trump candidacy. Uh, it's, it's been great. It's also been enough. So we could stop now. Thank you. My prayer is that Tablet's first annual herring tasting, which happens later this afternoon, goes well as someone who doesn't like herring. I will report back next week. Okay. Join us and as listeners know, the rest was history. In that moment, he went from being a colleague to being a friend and back to being a colleague. And he's always been both to me in a deep and meaningful and enriching way. Um, I am so, so grateful to him for the years that he spent making this just an incredible space for himself, for his colleagues, and most importantly, for listeners. Mark, at this moment, another moment of transition in our, at this point, I think nearly 20-year friendship as we move again from colleagues to friendship and back to being colleagues. I just want to say that I love you so much and I'm so grateful to you and I can't wait to see what we all do next. Listeners to our show know there is more than one Mark Oppenheimer. There's another Mark Oppenheimer who lives in South Africa and works as a barrister and also has a podcast about philosophy called Brain in a Vat. While he was in New York a few weeks ago, we got both Mark Oppenheimers in the studio together to just riff and do their Oppenheimer thing. For this next segment... I am thrilled to welcome somebody who is not unknown to listeners of this podcast, the other Mark Oppenheimer. How are you, sir? Fantastic. It's so wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. So this other Mark Oppenheimer is a South African barrister. He's the one who tweets. If you go look for Mark Oppenheimer on Twitter, you find him, not me. And he is the guy who got mark.oppenheimer at gmail.com, which, of course, is an unending source of annoyance to me. And I've been trying to figure out how to separate him from it ever since. How did we, I'm trying to remember, how you found me at some point, right? You emailed me because we were both podcasting. You were the host of Brain in a Vat, a really terrific philosophy podcast. Do you recall how the connection was made? Yeah, the first connection was I got an email from the New York Times saying, please come collect your check. (laughs) 
And I thought about defrauding you, but then I thought, now nah, we're kind of kindred spirits. We're both Mark Oppenheimers. And I wrote to you and said, get your check, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. That, that $300 or whatever they paid me for that book review. Um, let's really talk about the name Mark Oppenheimer. Let's get to the important stuff. What has it been like being an Oppenheimer in South Africa, where it is one of the most famous names? And you can explain to our audience that doesn't know this, what the name Oppenheimer means in South Africa, as opposed to New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, it's a name with an interesting story. So the wealthiest family in South Africa were Oppenheimers. Harry Oppenheimer and Ernest Oppenheimer were these, ran these gold mines. And so throughout my childhood, people would say, are you related to the Oppenheimers? What's interesting is that over time, their uh, cachet has shifted in the sense that they're now seen as these exploiters of the earth, these exploiters of labor. And so now people will say, are you related to the Oppenheimers? And I don't know which way it's going to go. Because they used to be like the Rockefellers in the good sense. And now it's, you know, exploitative plutocrats and practically slavers, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And so there's a sense of uh, hidden hostility that can happen in that conversation. But there's a town where we all come from, this town called Oppenheim. And I went to go visit in Germany, and it's quite an amazing place. It's this historic town. I was there for their thousand-year anniversary of their right to hold a marketplace. And all of those who bear the name Oppenheim or Oppenheimer were Jews. So basically, the Jews were invited into the town by the king of the time to stir up commerce. We're one of those. We're good at stirring up commerce. And um, there are very few of us. So there's a couple of us scattered around the world. I mean, to meet another Oppenheimer is a big deal. Right. Um, to be honest, there are very few Oppenheimers I've met outside of my family. So to meet another Mark Oppenheimer, I mean, what more do you want? I know. What more do you want? And you are not related to those South African Oppenheimers, right? The, as far as you know, the gold, I mean, except distantly, but you're not, you don't partake in their billions, right? I have a standard refrain when I'm asked, which is, no, they're related to me. <laughs> but that's a no. That's a no. That's a no. That's a no. Well, thank you for being on Unorthodox. You know, while you have me here, anything you want to know? Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that there were these interesting parallels in our lives. So one of the um, people that I grew up reading religiously was Dan Savage. Um, and uh, <laughs> About whom I've written much, right? <laughs> yeah. And this always delighted me that you, you know, that you picked that topic. You've got this book, you know, Childhood Subjects to Debate. And it's one of those books that I can pretend is mine because I was that snarky kid right. who was, you know, giving people a hard time. It is funny how you wonder if there's certain kind of overdetermined things about our path based on totally random stuff like one's name? Is there something about being Mark Oppenheimer? I mean, you probably also experienced the thing where people like saying your last name, like in high school. You know, if someone's last name was Mike Smith, they probably called him Mike. But if your name's Mark Oppenheimer, people want to say, hey, Oppenheimer or Oppie or what? There's something, there's a good mouthfeel to the name. And you do wonder if it's some weird butterfly wing flapping way, being nicknamed more, being, you know, pulls you into conversation more. I don't know. I don't know. As for my interest in Dan Savage, I can't begin to explain why we'd both be interested in pioneering sex columnist Dan Savage. I, I have no answer for you there. Roman Catholic, Chicago-bred, gay sex columnist Dan Savage, no idea. I just want to say, you know, in, in conclusion, we do think alike. I mean, that really is, I've been telling people, I just actually gave a Devar Torah at a synagogue this past week where I cited Robert Waldinger's book, The Good Life, in, based on the Harvard study of adult development, where the central finding is that human relationships and having meaningful generative work are the only real predictors of happiness, not money, not anything else. And it strikes me, obviously, the kind of law you practice as well, which is a lot of free speech law, civil rights law, you didn't go for the money. You went for what's going to be really, really fun, you know, perhaps much to your parents' chagrin or what you might, you have colleagues from law school who are raking it in. And I assume you're not doing that. You went for the fun. I'm lucky in that the work that I do is both incredibly meaningful and quite lucrative. Oh, um, really? <laughs> so <laughs> it's lucky to have- You the got kind both? Of, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's a very lucky thing. It's a good niche. There are people who picked the kind of corporate path 
uh, who do work that must be mind-numbingly boring and they don't get paid very well. Right. Uh, so I'm very fortunate in that front. It's wonderful to wake up every day and think that the work that you do is itself intriguing, but can also change the tides. That's amazing. Well, other Mark Oppenheimer, South African Mark Oppenheimer, host of Brain and Avat, since we've also discovered you are the well-compensated Mark Oppenheimer, lunch is on you. So good to have you here. Thank you very much. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Guten Tag, J. Crew. This is Sarah in Stuttgart, Germany. And since I've lived abroad, I've gotten to meet a lot of international folks. And my best friend is actually English Irish. I've got some other Irish friends. I've met all of my BFFs, Irish cousins. And in that context, it's when Mark Oppenheimer, Emeritus, the Glory Rev, um, <laughs> decided to claim there was almost no Irish speakers. I was just like, oh no. Oh, Mark, you're going to get in so much trouble. So, yeah, that has to be my best Mark moment. Going to miss you on the podcast. And, yeah, shalom. Hello, Unorthodox. This is Nathaniel Berman, and I'm calling because I just listened to today's episode featuring your very respectful conversation on Israel, and it took me back to my original contact with Mark when I emailed in reaction to the time you hosted Rebecca Vilkemerson from Jewish Voice for Peace. I had some points about the tone that was being used at that point, and Mark immediately engaged in a respectful response. So I want to thank him for his years of listening, of consideration, and of always engaging, never backing down from sincere and earnest, respectful efforts to engage. Thanks, Mark, for everything. Looking forward to following you on your future journeys. 
and keep up the good work. Hey, it's Wayne Hoffman, Tablet's executive editor. My favorite memory of Mark is when he asked me to explain bear culture to him. It was on the air on an episode of Unorthodox. He's asking me to explain what bears were, but also, of course, being Mark, where he fit in if he were, in fact, a gay man. I've always wondered, I've, I've never, I've always meant to ask you, Wayne, what is my, do I have strong bear potential? I'm not particularly large. I'm 5'8", and I should say fairly trim, but I, I could grow a, a beard in about three days. You're if like I, an otter. Am I a... Well, you know, the bear world has a lot of animals in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what animal would I be well, at 5'8", 160? Wayne, he's, he's no longer, a, he's not a twink, right? That, that is you, not... Mark, Mark is not a twink, although I will say, despite the fact that your age, I believe, starts with a four now... It does. Um, you actually still kind of qualify as a cub. Ooh. Um, if you grew a beard, I have to say I haven't seen you with your shirt off, but you could be somewhere <laughs> in the wolf or otter category, depending on where you landed. I'm sorry. You're in the room together right now. Why are we not resolving? Yeah, He's wearing a t-shirt under his button down. How hairy, how hairy are you? I have a fairly hairy chest. Then you could be an otter. The frustrating part is that it's been eight years since that episode aired, and in those eight years, my hair has gone quite gray, and I've gone from being a bear bear to being a polar bear. And Mark Oppenheimer, despite being eight years older, remains eternally, forever, a cub. Hey, it's producer Josh Cross. One of the things Mark always wanted more of on the show is music. Not between segments, but actual musicians playing and talking about what they're doing. So there's no way this episode was going to go by without a musical guest. Andrew Hahn, otherwise known as the Kirtan Rabbi, weaves traditional Jewish liturgy into the call-and-response chanting method from India known as Kirtan. He joined us to show us a little of his work and explain how he got started down this unusual path. So this instrument is called a harmonium. And as you can see, it has a keyboard. It's not an accordion. When everybody says, oh, it's like an accordion. But it is, it, it's a reed instrument. So the harmonium was originally a, a European instrument. Battleships had them so they could lead services with them. And the British took it to India. And the, I guess in India, they reduced it to this smaller box size instrument. Sometimes I'll just look at everybody and say, shall we just do this for the rest of the time? You know. I am Rabbi Andrew Hahn, also known as the Kirtan Rabbi. For the last almost 20 years, I've been roaming the country and the world doing something called Hebrew Kirtan. Kirtan, on, the, on its basic level, is uh, call and response chant, which means you listen, then I listen. There's been call and response in every religious tradition and every in all kinds of worship. But what makes the Indian technology from the subcontinent different is that it's really a continual practice. And the trading off is extremely important. And the listening to each other, it's more about listening than doing. It puts people into a very deep, deep state. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. 
So, Krishna Das, they call him the uh, Pavarati of Kirtan. He popularized it in the West. He was a Jewish kid from Long Island. He met Ramdas. And then Krishna Das and a group of others went with Ramdas to India and met the guru, and they all changed their names. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. A bunch of my friends from B'nai Jeshurun Synagogue, they were starting to get into Sanskrit kirtan. So as soon as Shabbat would end, they would put on Krishna Das and start dancing around singing in Sanskrit. And I, being the yeshiva bacher, thought, like, what are you doing? We're Jews. What, what, what is this? And I, and I refused to have anything to do with it. And my friend Danny, she gave me a CD, uh, Breath of the Heart. I refused to listen to it at the time. I was having a lot of trouble finding work. I was undermining myself because I knew there was something else I wanted to do. I just didn't know what it was. It's like the depth of winter. It's February 2004. And I'm in this dingy apartment. I was feeling like I'm a PhD, I'm a rabbi. I want to give. I had nothing worth working out. For whatever reason, that CD was sitting on the counter near my CD player. And I put it on, and it made me happy. Immediately, first listen, I think I said, this would work well with Hebrew. And then you'd sing back, so I just started to do it. I took the songs I knew from the synagogue and kirtanized them. So I would do the way we did it at B'nai Jeshurun. And, and then there might be that one variation, which is in the song. And then, but then I might be like, I might make some game out of it, which is a thing in Kirtan called Leela, where people just think that Kirtan's only about call and response and just get doing it again and again. But there's something called the most important factor is this Sanskrit term Leela, which means play, God play. So I had a Yaribon alum that was set to an Indian tune that. It went something like Yari Bonolam Veamaya Yari Bonolam Veamaya. So, really good kirtan chant in my mind, beyond call and response. I think a good chant tells a story. A prayer story, especially for the people who are in the Hebrew. But even with, if you're not in the Hebrew, you can kind of feel it that there's some a story being told. Then I'd add, add my own part. Unto Malka Melech Malchaya, unto Malka Melech Malchaya. Once it gets going, you've got to take risks. Your turn. 
It's very imperfect. It's not trying to be perfect. It's not trying to doven excellently. You know, it's it's trying to. It's not trying, actually. And we go and go. You can. There's a recording of it that's 15 minutes long. You can. So that that was the, probably the first thing I sort of set on my own that I didn't take from the synagogue. And then I started to write more and more and more things. <laughs> I had a Shema. So if I went to a synagogue in the old days, I'd always start with Shema because it would be the most familiar prayer. So start almost like saying Om to start out. I would say Shema. It's easy to ignite people who are, they just want to be high all the time. That's maybe one of my criticisms of the kirtan world is that people want to just be high all the time. It's more rewarding in some ways to go to some small synagogue in the middle of nowhere who've never encountered anything like this and get them to feel it. And then the drums will kick in. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu I think I, from doing Tai Chi and, and knowing a certain state of consciousness that's not that hard to get into, I wanted to help people meditate in an easier way. People will sit for incredibly long periods of time who've never meditated. The Kaddish is the most popular thing I've done. So I start with the words, Le'ela min kobir chata beyond all blessing and song. Like this. So I'm really trying to help people experience states of mind that I've experienced and also learning, learning how to be able to go there anytime you want, in any moment, even if it's for a second. I kind of invented this. And at the end, you have one group going, the other side is going Yitbarach Shimcha Yitbarach Shimcha Yitbarach Shimcha Yitbarach Shimcha Yitbarach Shemech Yitbarach Shemech Yitbarach Shemech Yitbarach Shemech I might be Hey Shmei Rabbah So the, the, the whole thing kind of explodes um, But I get For this chant I get letters from all over the world I've gotten letters saying This saved my life or this chant really was important to me and um i don't i I mean i kind of know why we know why but i kind of also don't know why um this or i don't know exactly how this happened this chant i don't remember exactly how i started to do it but again it was based on a very jewish root and then playing around with it
Hi, greetings to everyone at Unorthodox. This is Acharya from Philadelphia. I love this podcast. Is Mark my favorite member of the team? Well, I would never say that Mark was my favorite. Uh, how could I say that Mark is my favorite? Why would I even say that Mark is my favorite? I love his sense of humor, his literary knowledge and appreciation. But especially, I'm fond of uh, his、uh, skills as an interviewer. I actually rank him up there with Terry Gross and other favorites of mine. So I would love it if you could play a favorite clip of mine, all-time favorite clip of mine from episode 120, his interview with Martin Wisnotsky, the so-called Jewish lawyer of teenage girl chasing Republican creep Roy Moore. Somehow, no one else thought to interview this guy, but Mark did. And he didn't pull any punches. It's enlightening and it's hilarious.、Uh, let's just get it out in the open. Are, are you Jewish? I am. Yes. Parents are Jewish. Jewish on both sides. Grandparents as well. All right.、Um, but you now also are a Christian. Yes. Absolutely. And Hebrew school gave me a little feeling for God, but it really didn't play any role in my life at all.、And、once I went away to Andover and then to Harvard, so I had an experience. I was 33 years old, and someone prayed for me. It was a gypsy woman out in the state of Hawaii. She was plying her trade, looking for tourists that she could get money from by telling them their fortune. But as it turns out, she also was a believer in Jesus. And she sat me down and she prayed for me, and she said, "Jesus, take away his sins." So, a gypsy fortune teller in Hawaii, who was also, as it happened, a believing Christian, prayed with you, and that sent you to find the New Testament. And that sent you on a path of about seven years to finding yourself as a as a Christian. Roughly, that's correct. And what kind of church do you attend now? What kind of Christ? How do you identify? I'd say an evangelical Protestant. When Kayla invokes you as a Jewish friend of hers,、um, a lot of Jews recoil when they find out that you're in fact a, a Christian because they feel there's a kind of slipperiness when、uh, conservative Christians talk about、uh, ethnically Jewish people who are now Christian. As Jews, in other words, they don't like Jews for Jesus or Messianic Jews identifying as Jews because they feel that they rejected that identity and are now more identified with the Christian community. Do you? How do you feel about that charge? That there's something slippery or dishonest about her putting you forward as a Jewish friend? Well, I am Jewish, so there's nothing、uh, dishonest about that. I'm a Jewish Christian, and I'm not the only one. Anyway, best wishes to Mark in all of his future endeavors, which I'll. Follow the best I can, and I'll still remain a faithful listener to Unorthodox, whatever may come. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye. Hi, kids. It's Ellen Kanzager. I just love Mark's balance and his wisdom and his、um, ability to manage interviewing just about everybody. But most of all, I love every week. There's a moment every week when he signs off and he says "Shalom, friends." It's the most welcoming, embracing, warm greeting, and I'm really going to miss that. Shalom, bye. Hey, it's Sam Hacker, Chief Administrative Officer of Development and Finance at Tablet. I've only been at Tablet since 2021, but way back in 2017, when I was just an unorthodox newbie, they used to do this thing: every new subscriber to the email list got a warm welcome, like this. 
The time has come to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter. This week, it is the elite, elite personal injury law firm of Jeremy Crohn's Sam Hacker. That's female Sam Hacker, in case you want to picture her. Carl Shapiro, Ali Copeland, Tilda Rosender, Jordan McGill, Sophie Fierst, Aaron Hendershaft, Don Katz, Catherine O'Neill, and Irene Pappas Rudnick. So while you're all picturing me, I just want to say... Congratulations, Mark, on your emeritus status and know that I'll happily represent you in court any day. Hey, it's Paul Ruest. When I heard that Mark Oppenheimer was leaving the Unorth pod, I was like, how the fuck can there be an unorthodox podcast without Mark Oppenheimer? That's like saying... Let's make a boring game with nine guys throwing a ball around a field famous without Babe Ruth. But like all great hit or missers, everyone moves on with time. Mark, you had quite a run. The J team will surely miss you, and that includes me. I always appreciated it when you stood up to Leo when he took on an extreme position on a topic and I would be screaming into four inches of soundproof glass, and then you would jump in to light the fire of reason. You will be missed, Mark. But I have confidence that you'll step up to the plate and hit home runs. I love you, man. Good luck. So how do you end an episode like this? How do you end the Marcusode the tribute to the person who started this podcast, our friend, our co-host emeritus, the person who gave us so much. We wanted to go out on a bank. So we sent producer Robert Scaramuccia to get the real story, to go back to where it all began, to Massachusetts, to the birthplace of Mark Oppenheimer, to visit that original friendlies, to talk to Tim and Joanne Oppenheimer, to get into the depths of Mark Oppenheimer's soul. Have a listen. Last Monday, I met Mark for a trip to his ancestral home, Springfield, Massachusetts. Hello. Hello. Good morning. His wife, Sid, had taken the Tesla, so we hopped into the original Mark Mobile, his 2007 green Pine Mica Prius. And then Wacky 102 was classic rock Springfield. Wacky 102. Wacky 102. W-A-Q-Y, Wacky 102. And they had a gorilla as their mascot. I can't remember. This was a classic Mark and Robert trip in that I was 15 minutes late and he immediately asked me the big questions. Well, you could have a mustache just by shaving your beard. You're, you sure. have a mustache. It's That's just in hiding. Uh, what would it take to get you to go mustache? I don't, I don't. Uh, it would take an... We hit all the major spots in his childhood, which conveniently are just up and down the I-91 corridor. By the way, that's the food bag it was called. And I used to buy my candy there. We saw Bob's hobbies and collectibles where he got his baseball cards, his old paper route, because of course he had a paper route. Okay, this is my street. This is Bronson Terrace. And the terrace in front of his childhood home where he and Derek, Jay Frogamini, Adam and Ray, Mark Gould, would all play football on Saturdays. We talked about the sort of kid he was. Do you, were you a cool kid? No. I liked reading and I liked playing chess. The things I wanted to do with my time were not super cool things to do with your time. 
I was conversant with cool culture, like WWF, pro wrestling. I mean, Hulk Hogan and whatnot, and the Iron Sheik, Bob Backlund. That I, was that. Was that the coolest thing? I don't know what was cooler than that. Okay, there's the friendlies. There's my childhood friendlies, which, as you can see, is all boarded up, and it it held on till about two years ago, maybe. If you've listened to an episode of Unorthodox with Mark on it, you know friendlies. You know it's the greatest down-home restaurant slash ice cream parlor known to man. And you know it was founded in Springfield. We were at ground zero for the fish and jig and the fribble. My parents then moved one block from this friendlies. Presumably they moved here because of the friendlies. Yeah, I mean, you just wanted better access to the fribble, the fish and jig, etc. Of course, we also stopped by and talked to his parents. Hello. I'm Joanne Oppenheimer, and I'm Mark Oppenheimer's mother. And I'm Tim Oppenheimer. I'm Mark's father. What kind of child was he? Um, challenging, inquisitive. I wasn't prepared for a child who would be quite that challenging, have quite so many questions. Yeah, at times made us uncomfortable. Innocently, from his point. Oh, yeah, definitely innocently. innocently. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes. So we, we had to explain to a lot of adults, particularly, that he was just a child. Just yeah. wants to know. Yeah. People would come to me and say, I've never been asked that question before by a nine-year-old child, but it would, <laughs> or whatever. So Mark was always completely comfortable with adults in the way that young children are not usually. So when adults ta- would talk with him, he felt that he's... He had as much presence in the in the conversation as the adult. You didn't have to encourage him to take the initiative. He wanted to take the initiative. Okay, those are my parents. No, we have met. We have met the Oppenheimer. You've met the Oppenheimer parents. Okay. I learned a lot about Mark, or really, I confirmed a lot of things you probably already suspect. He's always had an unbelievable memory and this fine-tuned sense of nostalgia. And above all, a love and use for words. There we go. Mark Oppenheimer, 1992 LC debate tournament, second place advanced speaker. That's us looking at his debate trophies in a trophy case in his old high school. We'd sort of kind of broken into the Loomis Chafee School, which is more like a small college campus than it is a high school. There were at least half a dozen trophies with his name on them. Why debate? Why is debate the thing that you ended up writing a memoir about? Why did you do it? I just I just loved that you could win trophies for talking, for arguing. It was so great. There was a competitive activity where using reasoning and attempting eloquence and arguing, which were things I loved doing, I loved picking an argument, would get you trophies and friends because the debate scene, the debate circuit was a great way to meet other argumentative teenagers, and also kids from other schools. It was a whole day of learning where this dude came from. It's wild to see the the archetypal Mark Oppenheimer quadrangle right here. This right is here. This is the this is the the quadrangle that started it all. A nerdy, fribbly world opened up and defined by words. But what I really want to play for you is our conversation from the ride back to New Haven. The thing you have to know about editing Mark is that the man knows how to digress. I can't tell you how many Mark tangents I've had to cut out over the years. Tangents that are funny and thought out, but just don't fit in this or that unorthodox interview. This time, for Mark's last official episode, 
I'm going to do the opposite. Cut the substance, leave the tangent. You can guess the substance. How eight years of an orthodox went by in a blur. How he's sad to leave, but looking forward to spending more time with his family. The tangent is special. And the guy behind it? This is the guy I met eight years ago. The guy who taught my first college class. And taught me how to make a podcast. And taught me about the Smiths. This is the guy who, no matter the heights reached by unorthodox going forward, I'm going to miss hearing and editing every Thursday. This is the professional digressioner, whose digressions come right back around and mean more than the rest of the conversation put together. Ask him a simple, dumb question, and he'll give you something real every time. This is Jew of the Week, Mark Oppenheimer. Um meandering somewhere along the I-91 corridor in a pine mic of Prius. Let us head. So we have a bit more time, and you're stuck in the car with me, so I'm going to pepper you with oh, some you questions I that I... Also, you don't have to talk. You can listen to the radio. Whatever is good for you. <laughs> okay. more questions, I'll answer more questions. There are just a few things that I feel like I just, I, I do need to know. Sure. Um, do you actually like friendlies, or is it just a bit at this point? So, look, I'm dubious given that I recently saw Friendlies in Chicopee, Massachusetts that had a drive-through, which is so completely out of the spirit of Friendlies. I am dubious that a Friendlies day could give me the experience I want. Also, I'm now a vegetarian. I seldom eat meat, including fish. And the quintessential Friendlies meal for me is the fishamajig with fries, which is a, a sort of breaded piece of fish, yellow American cheese melted on top on white toast. And then of course you want for dessert a coffee fribble. Do I think they still have it? I'm dubious. Um, but back in the day, oh, I mean, sweet, sweet, sweet Jesus. That was a good meal. Have you been to the Friendlies in North Haven? Once. I went to their window and got a fish magic and it wasn't bad. That was the last time I said Friendlies was the Friendlies in North Haven. Why do you ask? Have you been? I that is That is the Friendlies that I go to. That is the Friendlies that all of my friends who didn't grow up in Massachusetts, I bring them there. Uh-huh. And pretty good it's a good time it's a good time good it, it is just it's the classic and you can only get this at certain places you can get this at like a ruby tuesdays maybe right. a tj fridays but like the classic chicken tenders that oh. nothing fancy is happening right. with right and you just they sell them you go there at 9 a.m and you can buy them and that's just it that's right. your breakfast they're not, try- they're not trying to upsell you a blooming onion they're not trying to sell you a margarita you know they're just giving you chicken tenders no i mean look friendlies in some ways Okay, there's a sociology here. There's some deep background. You have to remember that Friendlies came out of the Depression. Friendlies started during the Great Depression. The Blake brothers, Curtis and Presley Blake, borrowed 100 bucks from, you know, one of their fathers-in-law or something. And these two brothers opened friendly restaurants because they were friendly. It was not Friendlies. There was no apostrophe as it wasn't possessive. They opened friendly restaurant. And friendly restaurant, the first one was in downtown Springfield, was a place you could go during the Great Depression and get a big beef burger or cheeseburger, which by the way was on toast, not a bun. And, you know, fries and a cup of coffee for a dime or something like that. It was a quality meal at a at depression era prices. And then of course they had ice cream and you could get a scoop of ice cream. So you could do everything. You could have the it wasn't an ice cream parlor. It wasn't a coffee shop. It wasn't a burger joint. It was all three in one with sit-down service for a, a good price with friendly service. That wasn't so innovative, but the fact that they made it work and then they franchised it or, or they, you know, then they built out more 
more branches around Western Massachusetts than down into upstate New York, Pennsylvania, et cetera, was a, a wonderful thing they did for the, the Northeast of America. Now, what you have to remember about a TGI Fridays and Ruby Tuesdays is they came out of a different moment in time. They came out of the Fern Bar Revolution of the late 60s and 70s, okay? You don't know what a Fern Bar is. I have no idea what you're talking about. The term is not used anymore. The, the term is actually before my time. I was five when people stopped using that term. A Fern Bar was a restaurant slash bar, right? Friendly's doesn't have a bar. Nobody goes there for happy hour, right? It is a family restaurant. TGI Fridays was a New York City establishment that somebody started, I think, in uptown Manhattan. There was basically a family restaurant, but that also had a big bar. And they were in the 70s often decorated with ferns. You know, ferns, like the plants. You can sort of picture what I'm talking about, right? It's like, look how fun we are. We've got some, like, outdoor ferns. We've got plants hanging. We've got some cool, fun drinks, right? It makes it a little more like some, it's someone's patio. It's someone's pool house. It's their cabana. It makes it a little bit sexier when you have plants. So TGI Fridays was the original fern bar. You know, the sexual revolution is happening. A lot of people are having affairs, divorces on the rise, happy hour, work happy hours are kind of sexy things. People leave the office, they go to the Fern Bar, you have three or four drinks after work, the man doesn't have to go home to his wife, the woman doesn't have to be married, you've got a freer America. The TGI Fridays was the place you went. Yes, you could get a burger or fries like at Friendly's, but they had a bar there with plants and, and fruity drinks. And so it was a happy hour place. You see what I'm saying? Are you following me? Yeah, right. yeah. So it's a whole different vibe, right? It's the, it's, it's going to a Friendly's is the, the squarest, most family-oriented thing you can do. You go there with your mom, with your kids, you know, with your Aunt Susan, maybe with some coworkers whom you have completely platonic relationships with, no edge, no zhuzh, no sexiness, right? You go there, you have a fish midget with fries. Or, you know, 12-year-old boy goes there with his buddies. And in some ways, God, this is so, this theory is just coming to me right now. This is like you're watching the mind in action. I just realized this. In some ways, what happened to Friendly's was they got caught between a lower end, which was McDonald's, Red Robin. Denny's even. Denny's even, right? Which is cheap, cheap, cheap. No booze. Burger. Right. Cheaper, faster, a little bit less of a family, like a little bit sleazier because they're 24 hours, right? Waffle House. Waffle House. Exactly. The low end of Waffle House and Denny's. You get it. See, you're fucking genius, Robert. You get caught between the low end of the Waffle House, the Denny's, the Cracker Barrel, which is underselling them, and the food quality's worse, and they're open 24 hours, so they're getting really interesting elements at two in the morning. And then on the upper end, places that sell booze. And Friendly's was saying, no, we're neither of those. We are neither your greasy roadside spot, nor are we the place where you're going to drink and Mac on your coworkers. We are a family restaurant, truly family restaurant, where you can go with your kids and have a fish and a jig and a dish of ice cream afterwards. And something about America doesn't want that restaurant right now. But my, you know, just to give you a sense of friendlies, my mother and her women's group, and I'm talking the old school women's group, I'm talking Juanita Martinez, Denise Messina, Betsy Sokol, Sherry Oak, they met at friendlies. They got the big round table in the back and they ordered hot tea and toast, and they would just order pots of hot water and keep refilling their tea. And then they would leave a big tip at the end because they hadn't spent much on food. But that's where they would go and they would process, you know, what it was to be a woman in the 80s and women entering the workforce and 
being paid less than men were. And This is like a women's group, women's group. This was a women's group. This was a, a consciousness raising women's group. And they would go to friendlies and drink hot tea. And, you know, they would be there. And then three booths over, there would be some teenagers post homecoming dance or after the game, the Little League game. But it was, it was everyone. You know, I wrote my, I've always been interested in those spaces that bring together everyone. I wrote my college essay on The Gap. I wrote about how I loved The Gap because everybody went to The Gap. There was a time when The Gap was, was popular with kids who were doing streetwear and with kids who were doing really preppy clothes. That's what I loved about it, was it brought everyone together. And that was true of Friendlies as well. Just, you know, no one didn't go to Friendlies. Is that, I'm trying to tie this back here. Is that what you have wanted unorthodox to be? I mean, certainly within the context of the Jewish world, I've wanted unorthodox to be a comfortable living room for everyone. And that there are Gentiles as well makes it even better. To me, we were going to be a success if and when we had fans who were Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, everything, born Jews and converts, Orthodox, Reform, Reconstructionist, secular humanist, secular conservative, renewal, everything. Yeah, that it would be just a really welcoming space where nobody felt intimidated or felt that they didn't belong or felt that it wasn't their space. Basically, the friendliest restaurant of, of Jewish podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I guess that's where we've been going all along. And if you're going to Friendly's to order something healthy, if you're going there to order, you know, the veggie wrap, no, fuck you. Like, fuck that. That's not, that's not what Friendly's is for. That's not what you're here for. You, you're betraying yourself and the store. You're trying to make them something they're not. Go to Chipotle, get the veggie burrito. That's fine. I do it. But then go to Friendly's for your ice cream. And I'll tell you, the one time I wanted Friendly's and there was no Friendly's around and I went to Denny's instead, Denny's was disgusting. I mean, I really, <laughs> I almost threw up. And I ordered something very basic. You know, I ordered like a grilled cheese and fries and it was, you could taste the low qualityness of the food. And that was not true at Friendly's. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. For eight years, the show has been hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Jerome Rousquet, with administrative support from Sam Hacker and Georgiana LaRosa. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox name by Steve Barton. You can send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. If you wish to keep following the Corduroy Rav, you can subscribe to the further adventures of Mark Oppenheimer at markoppenheimer.substack.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by my rabbi, Eric Woodward, at my home shul of Beth Alkesser, Israel, Becky in New Haven, Connecticut. I would also like to thank, for various good deeds over the year, the original production team of Sarah Ivry and Julie Subrin, our erstwhile editors and producers like Sophia Steinert Evoy and Noah Levinson and Shira Telushkin and Alyssa Goldstein and Sar Fredman Ader. Who could forget the original Jubador, Jim Nabel, and later Jubadors like Noah Mosband? And of course, Paul Ruest, godfather of the late lamented Argo Studios, which for so many years was the home of Unorthodox. And the whole Oppenheimer Fremer Mishpocha, including Tim and Joanne, best parents ever, Daniel and Jessica, Jonathan and Britta, Rachel and Eric, and Rachel and Caleb, plus their offspring, also Alan and Linda Fremer, world's best in-laws. My wonderful children, too, and their stuffed animals, one of whom, the cow Gwackley, was the inspiration for the bovine Shema, a.k.a. the Shamu. 
Our dear friends who have helped take care of the Kinderlock need to be thanked. That would include Felicia Haggerty and Arnold Gorlick. The top brass at Tablet, Morty, Alana, and Wayne, they've supported this whole crazy podcast nonsense. I want to thank the Gatecrashers team for making the most Oppenheimer podcast ever. Also, all the independent ice cream purveyors out there, but especially Ashley's. I want to thank my current dogs, Archie and Minnie, and especially... I want to thank the late J.J. Diggles von Puchenstein Oppenheimer, also known as J.J., who resides now in dog heaven where all the squirrels are slow. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. 